0: Hello and welcome to Sarah and Paul
1: Paul's.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Sarah and Paul's Do Do Social Work.
1: Hi Sarah, how are you doing?
0: Yeah, I'm good. I've had a good day, a busy day, but productive, and it's nice to be here. I know we we didn't meet last month.
1: We didn't. Because we're so busy. At the moment,
0: lots of things happening.
1: Lots of things happening,
0: but it's great to be here. And we've uh, finally made it happen. So it is really
1: nice to just spend some time just to chill out, relax a little bit and um, and talk as well. And I think we're gonna go into that a little bit, aren't we, in terms of making time for yourself and making time to talk about your work rather than just constantly doing and constantly doing. Because today we're gonna to talk about recruitment and retention, really, really hotly debated, quite uh, difficult um, emotive, Do you say? I think
0: it will be at times for people. Yeah,
1: yeah. Without further ado, do you want to start with your do
0: So Paul, let's just quickly explain for anyone that wasn't listening at the very start why we do doo-doos and what you came up with was that I've just gone along
1: with. (laughs) What do you just gone along with? poo Poo Poopoos. Yes. So um, doo-doos is basically because uh, what have you done to make yourself feel good, make yourself feel proud, it feels a a little bit like Heather Small at the moment. Our poo-poos are things that have been a bit of challenges so it's also recognising that we actually have to overcome a few challenges, but that's okay, we can do that. So that's poopies and doo
0: Okay, so uh, my doo-doo this week is, um, well I was obviously going to mention the full moon, but I realise I've done that loads and you just roll your eyes at me. So um, <laughs>
1: Sorry, I just did it. <laughs> you just
0: did it. So I've chosen the Baton of Hope tour of the UK.
1: Okay. Which
0: is coming to Brighton this week.
1: Okay, do you want to explain what that is? Because I have so, no idea.
0: So the Baton of Hope is the biggest suicide awareness and prevention initiative.
1: Oh gosh, okay. It, yeah,
0: and okay. it's my doo-doo because I think it's a really important initiative and it's around reducing stigma. Um, it's about everyone getting better at asking questions and listening to others in order to save lives. It's and so
1: good, Sarah. You're so good at showing up at these things. It's so, amazing. well,
0: 8am tomorrow morning, actually, is when you going to show up. As with lots of difficult and painful subjects... The more that we talk about them, accept them and create a space where these things can be spoken about, then the greater we can begin to tackle the painful events of what occurs from suicide or other, other important topics that don't get talked about. Absolutely.
1: I'm and so surprised. you're so, I mean, you're you're always so um, giving and so thoughtful. And my doodos are always very um, self-centred, <laughs> but it's fine. It's I think okay. it's
0: always about the balance, though, Paul, isn't it? Because right, it's, okay. it's important that we think about others and the needs of others and the greater community yeah but it's also important that within that we also check in on ourselves and what's yeah. important to us too okay so then well handing the baton over to you then what's what's your doo-doo this way?
1: uh my doo-doo is um i'm doing a 12-week challenge at the moment so that's um going to the gym five times a week yeah and right. eating healthily but the the other thing uh, that i'm doing is trying to drink lots and lots of water which is probably the hardest thing to do at the moment. Okay. Me. I mean, it's like two or three litres. That's a lot.
0: But I try and do that every day. Do you? Yeah. Oh, so good.
1: I just, I, I'm in awe of you today, Sarah. Thanks. Just in awe.
0: Today only. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so what about your poo-poo?
0: My usual swimming in the sea. Yes. Which I love doing. Yes. And I've managed to do it only once this year so far. Uh been quite difficult to swim in the sea this year because I follow the, the sewage apps.
1: Oh, my God, I'm scared of what you're going to say next? No,
0: I'm not going to say nothing disgusting. <laughs> yeah. But you just can't swim in the sea as much or you have to be really, kept, like, keep an eye on your health ha- hazards. Oh. And also, there's jellyfish as well. That They've been around. So right. getting to the sea has been a lot harder. So that has been my poo-poo, which is the poo-poo... <laughs>
1: Literally in poo-poo. ...in the sea. And jelly. My poo-poo has been about... Uh, it's just been about listening, actually. I've really... It's been quite a challenging, kind of few weeks, maybe, and um, um, I think we should listen a bit better than we do, um, and that's the same for me as well. So I don't think that sometimes uh, I get listened to. So in in um, academia, we call it epistemological kindness.
0: Oh, this is an interesting term. I've not heard of this.
1: Okay, and it's just other ways of knowing that we have to accept that there are other ways of knowing, and actually. That's okay, but we have to be kind that other people have different viewpoints. Mm -hmm. That's all it means, but you know what academics are like.
0: (laughs) very self-reflective of you though to say actually I've not done enough like I want other people to listen but yeah. also I've not done enough listening and I guess that tied in a bit with what I was saying earlier around the baton of hope which is actually mm. we need to listen more and know how to ask the right questions and be more understanding and kind etc of people's experiences or what they might be going through
1: yes and it's really challenging as well as is all social work and I think unless we tap into that's what I've been reminding myself is that unless we tap into the fact that it can be really emotional work mm-hmm. I don't think we're doing doing it right sometimes.
0: So we're going to start this episode by looking at some of the facts and figures around the retention and yep. the recruitment of social workers. Fact
1: attack, yes, absolutely.
0: One of the things that what I had noted from, from a news article earlier this year yep. was that the numbers of social workers has fallen despite there's an increased need for social workers. Yes, absolutely. So in uh, from the Department of Education noted that 5,400 left the profession in the UK yeah. and that 7,900 vacancies in children and family social work existed.
1: In 2022, yeah, yes, absolutely. So it's 20% rise, is that correct? <laughs> Off the top of your head?
0: Oh yeah, my maths.
1: <laughs> but yeah, it's the highest rise uh, in ever isn't it
0: since 2017 it was the greatest number of vacancies or the greatest rise of people leaving yeah and it was being blamed on high stress high burnout but actually high stress high burnout has that always been the case or are we considering that austerity the pandemic the cost of living crisis is to blame for this so is it is it kind of are we isolating this and going this is down to current circumstances or are we saying actually the recruitment and retention of social workers or has been an ongoing issue for as long as we've been in the profession
1: yes so so it's been exasperated
0: exacerbated
1: (laughs) sorry exact exasperated is that correct
0: (laughs) exacerbated i got it wrong exacerbated
1: exasperated (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay. All right. I'm getting ex- exasperated by this conversation. Is that, <laughs> Is that good enough? Um, so they've also found on average in the UK, social workers are working 11 extra unpaid hours a week. So we're talking about working conditions being really, really poor for social workers. hmm. And I think you're right, I think it is a both hand. I think that we've always had a problem with recruitment and retention. We've also had a problem in terms of training as well, making sure we have enough social workers to fill up those vacancies. I think austerity hasn't helped. In fact, we know austerity hasn't helped.
0: There's been more inequality, more poverty, as you said, and relative yeah. poverty. Yes. which increases stress on families yeah. um, and cr- creates more need yes. in people. So, for example, families that might not necessarily have come to the attention of children's services or statutory services maybe now are or are now requesting support in a way that they wouldn't have done before. Yeah. And also the impact of early intervention yeah. services due to austerity having been closed, that therefore that there's, no work, there's no preventative work yeah. being done. Yeah, yeah know, I know that's like a bit of an age-old argument, isn't it, around going, let's do early help, early prevention. Does that meet thresholds? Where are the outcomes for that? How do we know it makes a difference? Mm. And then when local authorities, um, when they're experiencing austerity and don't have the money to provide those services, it's then that kind of, let's meet our statutory requirement, yeah. which is that really high threshold. Yeah. But by which point there's so much need that's been created yeah. that then the pressure and the workload on social workers... Yeah. Is I'm going to say extreme,
1: really extreme, and uh, and you're right. It is an age old argument, but it's it one it's one that hasn't been resolved, and it's one that kind of constantly is kicking the can down the road. And I get really really passionate about this. I know this might be a bit of a moany <laughs> episode, but actually I don't think I don't think we talk about it enough. I think we should be making more of a stance on this because our working conditions are really, really poor. And we can talk about the impact upon families and children and people we work with. And I know that's really emotive, but actually what about us? What about us in practice? As a
0: workforce.
1: Exactly. As a workforce, but also the impact upon our personal lives. You know, I'm lucky in a sense that I'm now in kind of research and academia, although that has its own kind of demands and stresses. But I can remember the real impact of that. And you're right in terms of kind of resources and in terms of the difficulty of the work is increasing. And I think also... The impact of that, of not being able, it causes something known as kind of moral distress. As social workers we have a passion, we have a a want to help others and provide the right resources. But because there aren't the right resources, actually that leads us to be in situations where we know what needs to be done. But we're unable to do it, and that causes us psychological distress.
0: And I can completely identify with that as an individual, but also my experience of working with colleagues over the years, which mm. is, and and also for both of us, the work that we've done with universities and students that come through to study social work and want to go into the profession to do a good job, to make a positive difference, and to put back into their communities. And then what you're actually faced with a, a system which doesn't enable that. You're then faced with a system that's let's meet statutory requirements but don't don't go over and above and actually people want to go over and above because yeah. a lot of social workers have empathetic personalities a real giving personality a real ability to want to meet others needs often at the detriment to their own e.g working really long hours and not getting paid for it for example yes and and then you have social workers that are experiencing that moral distress so when you talk about it as a kind of academic term actually that's really relatable yeah and lots of kind of over the years of working in social work we have those conversations around I really believe in this job I don't want to leave social work but this frontline work is actually it gets to a point where people realise that the detriment it's having to their own well-being
1: yes and just think about the language that we're using here as well we're talking about frontline
0: yeah and when we say frontline I guess let's be really clear about what we mean by frontline
1: well that's it, isn't it? We're talking about uh, people that are on the face to face, going out, seeing families, working with crises, risk, risk, not enough resources, and frontline comes from this idea of being on a battlefield, of being these pawns on the front line, mm. cannon fodder or whatever it might be, and mm. that's sometimes what we feel like and I think it's outrageous that we do. In terms of working conditions, there's a man called uh, Germain Revalier and he's done lots and lots of work with uh, British Association of Social Work, with Social Work Union, um, and actually with the government. He's been kind of quoted on the House of Lords and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and talking about working conditions for social workers yeah, and I'd really recommend people look at his work but he's talked about how actually, and he's showed, demonstrated even, that social workers are often employed under some of the most difficult working conditions compared to any other occupation in the UK And that's striking. He's also found across the world and confirmed that across the world, social workers continuously have poor working conditions. So that's not just for the UK. Yes. It's for around the world. And this has detrimental effects on our well-being
0: on people's well-being
1: absolutely and
0: kind of what they come to expect and I just wonder why that is is it because again social workers put others needs before their own and so maybe there's something about the characteristic that people aren't so good at advocating for themselves or is that just because of the authorities or the statutory role that, that the expectation is that you just kind of put up with it mm. I, I mean I don't know and I'm, I'm one of the things that kind of stood out for me as well as we were speaking and you talked about social workers' not being paid for the hours that they do. So we know social workers work after hours. We know that they work at the weekends. It becomes then familiar territory. Like that's just expected of the profession. Yep. And I think it's a bit of a slippery slope because it gets to that point where you're like, Oh, I just need to get this report in or I just need to do this. Yeah. And I and I know for the next three weeks I'm just working towards this deadline. And then you think and then after that I'll be better. And then what we know as when you've been in it for a really long time is that there isn't ever that after that. And you say, you talk about poor conditions, with the result of the pandemic more and more people are now working at home Mm. and we know that local authorities are closing more of their buildings and Mm. the expectation is that when you go into an office you won't have your own desk necessarily your own office to go to people are therefore choosing to work at home which will suit some people but then one of the benefits that I really got from working in social work was my team and Mm. my colleagues Mm. um, supporting you through those really challenging scenarios and trauma that you have to work through Mm -hmm. and then when you're working at home by yourself you are not then getting the benefit of the connection of your colleagues Absolutely. so where is where's the benefits in your job yeah. and i wonder if that's also had a, an impact on people's decision to leave the profession
1: yes and they found that the pandemic has had an impact and i think it's really dangerous for us to think about the pandemic is over and done with and we don't have the effects of the pandemic anymore because it's still a reality um, and it's not just something that happened and now we're on to the next phase For all of us, the pandemic, it was something that we had to change our working lives, our personal lives, we were all affected in some way or other. This whole narrative that we just kind of have got over it and let's forget about it, that's not the reality.
0: And particularly within this part of the country where cost of living is really high, for example, in the South East, there are social workers that are living in shared accommodation that were in their bedrooms having to do some really difficult casework Mm -hmm. and were living in their bedrooms. Mm -hmm. And yet there was a real disproportionate because sometimes other people might have the privilege of having an office space, for example, but that wasn't everybody's experience.
1: Or gardens. Or gardens. Yeah, yeah. Can I talk to you about the Northern Ireland Review of yes. Children's Social T- Care?
0: Tell yes. me, tell
1: us more, Paul. So, sorry for going off on a tangent. <laughs> a Not little like rant. you, Paul. I know, I do apologize. But in Northern Ireland, uh, Ray Jones was talking about 10% of posts are vacant and uh, some teams have vacancies at up to 50%. Also in Northern Ireland, uh, looked after children, 3,800 lakh children. That's a record high.
0: So children looked after in the care yeah, of the local so authority. should never say
1: lack children, that's really, really bad. Don't ever say lack children. Does, no, so there's children.
0: how many children in care, living in statutory local authority care?
1: Um, so there's 3,800 children and that's a record high. That just shows the demand and actually there aren't enough resources. There's a huge turnover, mm. People le- not even a turnover, people leaving and not enough people being trained to replace the social workers. We've always got to remember that social workers' relationship-based practice is that it underpins all of the work that we do and with high turnovers of staff actually we don't get time to build those relationships
0: but I feel like that that sometimes that term relationship based practice relationship based social work Mm. is something that if you speak to social workers that have been going since the 1970s or were in practice then will say that's exactly what social work was about and then that got stripped away through resources, underfunding and that the local authorities were then all about statutory requirements so you meet what's in legislation as a local authority Authority. Anything yeah. of and, and above, yeah. we haven't got time for that or we haven't got the resources for that. Yeah. Oh, but hang on a minute, relationship-based social work in research says it works. So what do we do? Let's slap a label on it and say this is relationship-based social work. Yeah. And actually, some of it might be, but is it really underpin? And that's a bit of my challenge because yeah. there's, there's social workers out there that are in real conflict and dilemmas where yeah. they want to go out and do that relationship-based social yeah. work, but guess what? Ofsted are visiting in two weeks. Yeah. They've got to write that report or yeah. they've got so many statements etc cetera, etc cetera. so therefore that conflict moral of- distress the moral distress, Paul, yeah. of spending time with families, doing that meaningful engagement, relationship, trust, building trust yes. with to enable people to make change yes. is kind of taken away at the detriment of writing, uh, you know, statements, reports, fulfilling a statutory requirements on a computer system.
1: And then you've got some researcher or academic coming going, oh, just make sure it's all about relationship-based, and you're just going, ah! Yeah, no, I get it, I'm, I'm sorry, yes, I, I understand. Ray Jones also talks about actually how we constantly talk about child protection social workers and in the McAllister review it tried to split those things up Um, and it suggested that the more experienced social workers should do the child protection the less experienced should do the family support and what Ray Jones makes is a really really valid point is that that's not gonna help anything because Mm -hmm. actually we should be doing both at the same time but also by having the more experienced people doing that work what it means is that the experienced people aren't doing the family support bit which is just as valuable
0: well it's re- it's really important because it then prevents escalation of risk
1: absolutely and if
0: you're not ex- haven't got the kind of years of experience to understand where something that doesn't isn't risky at first but has the potential to increase risk yeah. or assessing those risk factors, then you're not going to be able to provide the right intervention. Yes. So and this idea that actually this is where we need the most experience, this bit is the less experience. Again, what's more important and actually all of it's important, yes. the early preventative work, the child protection, managing risk, reducing harm, but also the work that happens afterwards, the therapeutic input which happens around after harm has been experienced yes. there's also a role for social workers there, yes. experienced as well and yeah as you said there, sh- there needs to be a mix for everybody absolutely and so people are properly supp- families are properly supported but so are staff
1: yes absolutely so the northern ireland ray jones's northern ireland review of children's social care that happens uh, at the beginning of july it came out mm-hmm. um 2023 so it's fairly recent so it's just things to bear in mind this, these things aren't going away and just before we move on to kira murphy's amazing amazing article i just want to the last thing i think we should discuss is agency workers I really do. I think it's a really, really thorny topic, but I think we should just talk about it.
0: You can't talk about the retention and recruitment of social workers without naming agency workers. Yeah, We've yeah. all been there in practice. There'll be people now in practice. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever worked as an agency worker yourself?
1: I haven't, but do you know what? I've been really, really tempted to. I think there's a dilemma for me, and mm-hmm. I'm sure it's the same for everyone. Of For me, if I was an agency worker, I think I'd be more valued in terms of money. I think I'd be more valued... Maybe in terms of my self esteem, being more able to manage my workload. But I'm also aware that agency workers, the money goes to an agency. It
0: goes to a profit making agency. Yes, yes. And some of those statements that you made about an agency worker, I don't know I haven't been an agency worker myself.
1: Have you ever wanted to be one?
0: Probably not. Like you, I've definitely considered it because yeah. the money is so different. But the sense of being alongside your colleagues—I don't know if agency workers get that sense of being yeah, part of maybe. a team, or that when they arrive, they get given some of the most complex cases that haven't been allocated within True. the team. And actually, because they don't already have those relationships with the team, or because they're seen that they're going to be there for a short period of time, those relationships aren't invested in. Mm. I wonder if they're left feeling more isolated, more alone, and carrying higher risk. Yeah. So for that reason, I've not wanted to ever. For that become... reason,
1: I'm out. <laughs> So I think if there's any agency social workers out there, please, please let us know Ooh. your experiences. I'd love to know your experiences and, oh. and, and the challenges, but also the opportunities that come along from being an agency worker.
0: Do get in touch with us yep. and uh, the details of our email will be at the end of the show.
1: Yes, and they're on our website. And you can also email us at, at com. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, etc, etc.
0: Let's go on to the next part and we're going to talk about the article by Kieran Murphy. Yes. Who's Kieran?
1: Kieran is uh, now my mate. No, I don't know who's (laughs) my mate. I've made contact with him and he works at Edge Hill University um, in Ormskirk in the UK. He did an article for the Journal of Social Work Practice on how learning from lived experience of child protection social workers can help us understand the factors underpinning workforce instability within English child protection system. And it's an amazing piece of work I would really recommend people read it, it's really accessible, simmering things down into mechanisms. So the three mechanisms They all interact with each other for social workers, so one is around threats and intimidation, the other round is is around personal costs, and lastly around a sense of pride. So let's go into kind of threats and intimidation.
0: Threatened by that real threat of risky people that they're working with, or the threat of insecurity in their jobs, like which one is he referencing to? He's
1: mainly referencing actually the threat of people that we're working with, so The fact that we do get threats, not on a daily basis, let me just make that really, really clear. But we do experience some amount of threats and intimidation from families that are in really difficult situations Mm -hmm. who will lash out at authority figures. They will lash out where they don't want to proportion blame on their family context or the context that's surrounding them all of that stuff well if
0: we bring a really trauma informed approach to it Paul yeah. people will act out in threat when they feel scared feel fearful which lots of people do when you have social work intervention because people's baseline can often be that social workers remove children and of course people want to protect their family life and yeah. will therefore lash out but also we are working at times with some very risky individuals yes. and so when we think about you know a few episodes back we talked about working with those who perpetrate domestic abuse or use abusive behaviour particularly on the higher end of that scale, you are working with individuals who use harmful behaviours in their relationships and therefore being a social worker means that you're also at risk of being harmed. And we think about the situations where there'll be times where social workers, you have to go in together, you're going to a visit together because of the level of risk. But that isn't always the case. Again, if we think about resources or we think about actually needing to do visits at the end of the day. And of course, there's always a level of risk assessment to ensure the safety Mm. of our. And our team, but as social workers, we're working with risk towards others, but also towards ourselves. We're yes. having to constantly assess that.
1: We are. This really struck me in terms of the paper and and a quote from one of the social workers. I just want to I do. Want to read it out, actually.
0: So this is a quote from a social worker from the article.
1: Yes, and we don't know the gender, so that will also have an impact, won't it?
0: There was a time when leaving a home visit, I returned to my car to find that it was surrounded by about five or six men. One was sitting on the bonnet. I asked them to move, but they ignored me. I got my phone out to call the police, and then one of them, who I later learned was an uncle in the family, said, if, referring to the child, doesn't come home, then neither will you. I was terrified. It's shocking, isn't it? Um, well you say shocking, it's really uncomfortable to hear mm. but to people that have practised in social work will probably not necessarily experience that as shocking because it's really believable mm. and it's not surprising and I guess it reflects back to kind of experiences that my, I might have had where yeah. I've been threatened whilst in post it very much reminded me of experience where a colleague was followed home mm. and their car was set on fire and I've had experiences where I've been told I'm going to find out about all of your life and yeah. I'm gonna come for you. And I can understand how that person felt threatened by the role of social workers and this perception that we kind of know everything about everybody mm. and we and we don't. Mm. We are just working with them on what's very important to them, which is their children. Mm. But as, when somebody feels threatened, some people's response to that is to increase the threat back. And yes. actually, when you're working with certain individuals, you believe them when they say that to you. Yeah. You know, and I then had to follow some safeguarding procedures via line management, etc. Yeah. How about you, Paul? Have you? I've been... had
1: th- I've had threats on my life <laughs> in work. <laughs> yeah. I just want to say that I don't want to scaremonger as well i think that's really important and actually the threats that i've had have been pretty much few and far between Mm -hmm. but that doesn't undermine how real that felt and how deeply traumatizing it feels to have a threat on your life Mm. Um, And that's in no way to say that all or the majority or anything like that of the people that we work with are going to threaten and intimidate us. But it's just to say that it does happen.
0: It does happen. I think that's a really good, valid point to hold in mind. That the majority, when I think about all of the families that I've worked with Mm. over the years, the majority of them have not made personal threats to no. me and that I've been able to place their behaviour and responses within the context of trauma-informed practice and yes. recognising their trauma responses rather than feeling personally attacked. On the other hand, social workers do, and do experience that and that will also play into people's experiences of, do I want to stay in this career?
1: Mm, mm. And I think that goes on to the next bit, isn't it? Because we're talking about working conditions. So the next bit is about personal costs. And we have to remember that Doing the work that we do, we do it because we're really passionate about it and we will work extra hours, but it has personal costs in terms of work-life balance, it has personal costs in terms of our own families, mm-hmm. people going home and being able to see their own kids and be part of their child's life.
0: It becomes a real dilemma because for lots of social workers who say, for example, have children at home, and I guess I can speak kind of, I can speak for myself and not for everybody, but that sense of going, well, I feel like I've invested so much physical and emotional energy in my day. Mm. that when I go home how much have I got left to invest into <laughs> my own home life you yeah. know and then that accumulates so over a number of years you then begin to reflect and go okay I've done a good job here where yeah. else now does my focus need to be mm. and I, I wonder if that's experience for, for other social workers as well well it's particularly when we're thinking about the sense of personal cost
1: yeah and those relationships so I remember you know we do a lot of talking we do a lot of thinking and a lot of kind of inter- interaction with lots of people during our work day and then we go home and actually we don't want it so when especially if someone's saying oh guess what I saw um a bird in the garden today you know trying to make contact with with us and we're just like oh I don't want to hear about the blooming bird (laughs) you know it's the last thing I want to hear about and actually that's really important that we do listen to each other's days and all of that kind of stuff but we're just emotionally spent you know Yeah, And it has personal costs in terms of kind of holidays as well. And in terms of the stress, because it's almost like there's... When we're thinking about workloads, it's almost like that game, um, Buckaroo, sometimes. Right, okay. <laughs> yes, I
0: know the game, I'm picturing
1: it. <laughs> I was going to say Hungry Hippos, so it's not that. But Buckaroo... <laughs> where sometimes it's almost like the managers have so many cases to allocate and i'm not blaming managers here because they have so many cases to allocate that they keep on just trying to load more and more responsibilities mm. I hate using the word cases onto you until at one point you just go i can't do it anymore and then they come back down mm. and i can remember having little what i would call fuzzy fits at work where i would just go i can't do it anymore Mm. And then it would almost be like a day of my manager going, okay, I know the limit has been reached.
0: Your window of tolerance, maybe. Exactly. But also that sense, and we haven't talked about resilience today, and I know a lot gets personally put on social workers to be (laughs) resilient and all the things you can do to be resilient. And I know we're going to speak later or shortly about what might help. But, of course, as social workers, we give so much to other people's complex lives that in terms of that tipping point or that buckaroo, mm. social workers also have their own stresses and strains with their personal lives because that's life and yes. social workers aren't immune to it either. No. And so it can just take something within your own personal life. Yeah,
1: loss, that any loss that you have. Grief, yep.
0: people's own experience of difficult relationships, yep. family relationships, whatever your role is within your family, a caring yep. role, parenting role, there's a tipping point and that sometimes your personal life requires more from you yep. or actually you require more from yourself in terms of self-care yep. and therefore it's really difficult to then keep up with the work so when you're when life's going good in your personal life and you're resilient you might be able to really give it all to the profession Mm. but of course there's got to be times where there's got to be give so those high expectations which are continuous within social work continuous yes um there comes a point where it's not sustainable
1: no and this resilience thing sometimes really annoys me because it's always put back on social workers of you're not resilient enough and actually it's not about that sometimes it's about the systems isn't it stop blaming social workers stop saying Oh, we just need better trained social workers to deal with the stresses and strains well no 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 let's deal with the stresses and strains let's deal with the really poor it's working it's a systemic issues. issue correct stop putting it back on individual social workers and saying well you're not quite tough enough are you that's what you need to toughen up you need to be a bit more resilient
0: just thinking on a real practical sense though about the personal cost Mm. is we talked earlier about social workers working longer hours what we didn't really acknowledge as well around how as a social worker the amount of times that you might have bought somebody some food or dropped something round to a family or I remember working with a family and I'd gone round on the child's birthday and there'd be no acknowledgement of his birthday and it was in the early part of my career and I felt a real sense of responsibility to make this child feel special. So I went off and bought him a birthday present and brought it back to the home out of my own pocket. You can't necessarily claim back for those things. And therefore the amount of times that people or social workers might have done that over the course of the career, that it is a personal cost in terms of your emotional investment. Mm. But also if we're thinking about social workers themselves who now are at a higher record of visiting food banks themselves Mm. but are still giving money to families out of their own pocket as well, and that comes at
1: a personal cost. And coming back to Revalier's work, again, please go and source it. He talks about now actually, in terms of that recognition and people leaving work, there's financial stuff there, being paid enough, especially in cost of living crisis. That's becoming really important in terms of our considerations as well. So that's an additional layer that I think we didn't have, maybe. I mean we've always been poorly paid for the work that we do but it's got to that point now where it's actually such a crucial consideration for social workers. So the last mechanism was around pride. So what keeps us in the job?
0: I can identify with that. Yeah. But it feels like a real sense of identity. And yeah. although, you know, we've talked about the front line, I'm not working on the front line yeah. anymore. But that sense of pride of being able to identify as a social worker, it's part of my identity that I haven't want to have left behind. Mm. There's also been times where i felt in conflict with that because when we know about high-profile media reports around social workers, for mm. example, letting children down, mm. when you're working in the system, you know it's a systemic problem but that's not necessarily the the message that the public receives yes so at times it's also not always come at a sense of pride it's kind of had to come at as a i'm a social worker slightly apologetic i understand we don't always get it right kind of stance but on the other hand deep down you know i've done this job because i believe really strongly in community and it's supporting people to be the best that they can and that we really need to invest in people
1: i'm so proud to be a social worker and you know even though i'm a researcher at the moment i am a social work researcher the social work bit always becomes whatever i become you know and i'm really really proud of it having said that you're right and we need to get a better kind of reputation out there so that it's not just these bad social workers because that's so poor in terms of feeding into threats intimidation all of that kind Mm. of stuff we are there to support the majority of the work we do is to support families to stay together
0: But we also turn up in really difficult circumstances yeah. and so therefore the kind of identification that social workers kind of are there when things aren't great mm. it's also really real in life for people so i guess that's also like an uncomfortable truth that we have to sit with yeah. particularly given the kind of uh, how much more under-resourced the profession yeah. is yeah. that social workers find it harder and harder to go above and beyond yeah. find it harder to do that long-term relationship based yeah. practice that it is that statutory in do a piece of work close it because there's another family that needs your support
1: but even when we go above it can I give you a little another little side anecdote and go su- give
0: me s- a I'm little nugget sorry oh. I'll
1: try and be really really quick when I was working for the British Association of Social Work we were working with newspapers quite a lot and doing kind of press releases and things like that and I was interviewed by a national newspaper and it, it became apparent really quickly that the journalists started off by saying oh don't worry I'm one of the good guys I will always you know be a I'm a proud um, advocate for social work it was just after the pandemic and what he wanted me to say was social workers during the pandemic left lots of children at risk now I refuse to go down that line of thought I mean the reality is the pandemic has such an impact that we weren't able to do our jobs to the full effect and of course there there is people were
0: by virtue of the pandemic people were left at increased risk
1: correct but it's not all social workers faults and actually Lots of social workers during that time were going above and beyond and finding creative ways in order to engage with families. But it was just that twisting around to meet that kind of narrative that it's all social workers' fault, right? They're
0: not doing enough. And then that kind of comes on to they need to have better professional development yeah. or more training or we can only um, only employ people that have already got a degree in something. So let's fast track them in this because they're going to be academic. Yeah. And I I'm really challenged by that narrative. Yeah, yeah. And th- this kind of perception that it's social workers for, and therefore they're not intelligent enough, or they haven't been trained enough, <laughs> etc., is scapegoating. The real, the real problem of underfunding and poverty, and poverty, and yes. and the link between inequalities,
1: <clears throat> marginalisation. Real...
0: But the real link between poverty and need yeah. and harm that yeah. is just not recognised by central government or those in power, it's etc. Curious. and it's ongoing. Yeah. And so this idea of continuous professional development, I'm behind it because, you know, my own experience is the more I've learnt, the more knowledge I've gained, I really appreciate that. I think it makes me a better practitioner. But do I think that social workers need more training? Yes. Mm. But do I think that that's the, that's the only answer? No.
1: No, no. No. Coming back to that sense of pride, when you're in a pub with people you haven't met, Would you be proud to announce that you're a social... Not announce, stand up and announce. But would you be proud to kind of say that you're a social worker? I'm
0: really interested that you use the term, like, the context of being in a pub. Like, does it have to be a pub? Could it be in any other social context? Yeah,
1: yeah, social context. And
0: I would say it really depends. It's never something that I I freely announce to people. Mm. I gauge the sense of the conversation. I gauge the sense of the people that are in the room Mm. before I announce it. I think maybe as I've got older, perhaps I've become more self-assured at announcing it and being able able to advocate for it Mm. but that hasn't been the case continuously through my career I've definitely met people I haven't shared with them what my what my profession is in a way that if you told somebody that you were a nurse or a doctor you'd get a different different recognition or appreciation
1: sometimes I think it's easier for me to tell people that, that I'm gay yeah. then I'm a social worker. Okay, that's you know? that's
0: such a good, like, <laughs> interesting and valid in point, it's, it's you know. It's less
1: controversial. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that weird? It's like, you know, I can, and not that I would, but I can wear a pride T-shirt saying yeah. I'm proud to be gay, but uh, would I wear a T-shirt saying I'm proud to be a social worker? Probably not. <laughs>
0: Good point, Paul. But I mean, on the other hand, we have to remember that we do live in a Brighton bubble, and that other people's experiences around the country will be very different. Yeah.
1: So we've talked about the issues, and you can see how passionate we're both guessing. And I think that's great, actually.
0: We are very passionate. Yes. However, I, let's not continue without acknowledging that neither you or I are working in frontline social work anymore, Paul. Uh, yeah. Okay. So when we're talking about the very issue of <laughs> recruitment and retention, a
1: hypocrite. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Go on.
0: Let's just reflect on who we are and where we're at for ourselves right now. Is that a good thing?
1: I think so. Why did you leave?
0: My choice to leave was because I saw an opportunity for doing a job which was kind of more specialist in Mm -hmm. an area that I'd been working in. So particularly around, and I've spoken about it before on podcast, working within domestic abuse arena. That felt like a good move away. However, I will have said before that... This is not something I can do forever. Mm. I need to do something else. And I know that colleagues will have said the same. Mm. And So there's this sense of going, we're in this, but, you know, we can't do this forever. And for me, I left because another opportunity came up, which, again, we've talked about money and pay. Mm. And it wasn't more money, but it made me go, this is the opportunity now that I can get away from the really difficult stuff that i that that i experienced and so what i found kind of most challenging around the role was making those recommendations mm. around the long term care of children yeah. in circumstances when i just felt like had there been more resources, moral, may, distress. moral distress, maybe the outcome would be different. And do I want to continue being part of what feels like a very difficult mm. system right now? So mm. that moral distress over time mm. weighed heavy and the decision to go, if I take this other opportunity... I won't be working at weekends anymore in the way that I've needed to. Is like, that
1: is that the reality though? Yeah. Oh, in terms. Oh, in terms of it? the
0: day job, that's yeah, yeah. completely the reality. So the reality of going, I want, I want to give something back to my personal life, my family members who I've neglected for years. So that was my decision making.
1: I don't think you should feel guilty about that. And I think sometimes we're made to feel guilty about leaving. If I'm going to be really real here, one of the decisions why I left was also because I was given opportunities and funding and to do research and all that brilliant stuff. But it was because, again, I wasn't sure how long I could keep going um, and doing, and it wasn't just working with families because actually a lot of the families that I worked with, I really missed that contact with with agree. families and the inspiration of families actually striving together, making do, getting by, is inspirational. I miss that bit.
0: I miss that bit and I'll just very quickly say, every single family I've worked with, I've learned something from yeah, those yeah, people yeah, 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 yeah. and I've taken something from away with me, so they have enhanced my life as well.
1: Yes, yes. On top of that is working conditions, on top of that is it's relentless, on top of that is office politics, we haven't even mentioned that. All these different people with different vicarious trauma going on, trying to sort out their mess in their heads sometimes battling against each other we talk about drama triangles how many drama triangles are there in social work in an office at one time
0: (laughs) who's eating all my biscuits
1: and that's a really good to start thinking about how can we just take a step back because we're getting really passionate about it we're not even in front line so what can we do and one of the things you're going to like me saying this is uh mindfulness and taking time for yourself
0: i've got this great app
1: yes which is a
0: mindfulness app and it's free and it's called insight timer ah and and you can do like breathing exercises but by yourself for as little as like three minutes through to longer it also helps with sleep meditation do you believe in it though paul i do
1: absolutely you know I, i you know i am very practical i do like things in certain orders But I am realising that I need to take time for myself, whether that be taking a walk.
0: But it's so much easier said than done when you're not, when you're away from practice and that sense of eating your sandwich. Even we used to say eating your sandwich in the car on the way to a visit was better than these back to back online meetings that people hold now. So it is around how do we prioritise 20 minutes for ourselves Mm. as much as we prioritise a meeting, and yeah. it's being able to find a way to advocate for your needs as
1: well. We have to remember that productivity, once you've taken that time away for yourself, will increase.
0: But then there was there was an article that I read in Community Care Online that talks around can social work be done differently? For example, are there merits in having part time social workers? They did mm. a survey on it, and some people reported and said yes, there is merit for part time social work. That more part time posts should be available. Mm. other people said well actually it depends on what your role is within social work Mm. and then other people said no because even if you're part-time you get given a full-time caseload anyway you just got to manage it in three days Mm. perhaps that should be given more merit and consideration because community care noted that social workers with protected characteristics Mm. for example staff with neurodiversions potentially working part-time hours Mm. is it increased productivity
1: okay Yes
0: There's this expectation We should be working longer Harder hours But maybe shorter hours Suits people individually So
1: let's shift that narrative From actually the only way We can get work done Is by doing more And doing it constantly That's the type of systemic change That we should be advocating for The other thing to note Is things like Personal support services So if you work for a local authority Actually most HR departments Will put you through To things like counselling I know that uh, The British Association of social work they have um peer-to-peer support really useful so there are things out there and actually sometimes we don't think we've got the time or we don't think we deserve those kind of services but we do and we should make use of them we really really should so i
0: partly recognize that i probably was able to stay in the job for such a long time because i was slightly addicted to the adrenaline <laughs> and i guess i'm just naming that because i think that that was a thing and yeah, that was yeah. also a conscious decision that when i came away and changed roles i was a bit like how am i going to manage without all this adrenaline pumping (laughs) through me like what will i become so now you
1: go skydiving
0: (laughs) (laughs) so now i do this podcast which is quite adrenaline fueled in itself paul I got a lot from the families that we were with, and that sense of pride in, in the job mm. was was great for me. So I guess recognising what is it about this role that fulfils me mm-hmm. is also something that worked for me.
1: I'm going to get you really excited now. Can I wrap this up beautifully in a bit of academic discourse?
0: Go for it, Paul.
1: So recognition theory, do you know recognition theory?
0: Stop asking me questions or I have to say no. <laughs> Tell us about recognition theory, Paul. <laughs>
1: So recognition theory is this idea that there's three different spheres of recognition. So there's the personal, there's the interpersonal, and then there's a more structural type of recognition. Now recognition is really important to us. It's important to the people that we work with as well. So it's about recognizing the reality. So on that personal level, it's about us recognizing ourselves, Mm -hmm. but also getting that from our managers, our peers. So having that peer support, but also making sure that our supervision is not just case management, it's about reflection, recognition from our organization better working conditions, better pay. And then recognition from society. We're not just these nasty social workers that it's all child protection, um, but recognition of the good work that we do as well within society. Mm-hmm. So those three levels need to be looked at and we can do that through trade unions and do that through different methods, but that's where we need a more holistic idea of recognition of how we recognize our the work that we do, the impact of the work we do, but also other people understand the impact and recognise that impact.
0: And so, Paul, who should we recognise for the recognition theory?
1: Oh, I like what you did there. So, recognition theory is by Honneth. There's also stuff by Fraser. And there's lots and lots of social work journals and articles out there. There's a really good one um, that talks about recognition of children's experiences of kinship care by someone.
0: Oh, hang on. I think I know them.
1: (laughs) All right. Um, Is it you? Yes, of course it's me. Of course it's me! (laughs) But I would uh, recommend.
0: No, I recommend. I. W- I really recognise you.
1: Thank you. Oh, Gosh, it's all about me.
0: That was really interesting to hear about the recognition theory at the end. Thanks. It wasn't something <laughs> that has been on my forefront in the way that we talk about attachment theory, yeah, yeah. systems theory, strengths based approach, etc. Yeah.
1: Solution focused.
0: How are you? What's one thing you're going to take away from today that you're going to do?
1: Yes. Well, I'm really glad, for example, that um, that I mention it quite a lot. And certainly in terms of training social workers, but also I'm really glad that I don't want to plug Baswa, but I'm going to plug Baswa here and just say, I'm really, I'm happy that I'm part of that. The British Association of Social Work in in the sense that I feel that there is a way that I can instigate some kind of change for social workers out there. What about you?
0: I really value this time and space to unpick some really important issues Mm. in social work that when you're in practice, you just don't have the time or the capacity necessarily to give this a lot of thought. And so yeah. I really value having this opportunity to spend time talking to you about some really important and key issues.
1: I'm going to end on a Sarah Flagg um, little bit of a hippie note.
0: Oh, I love this. Go on. <laughs> Maybe.
1: Just to say that um, to all our listeners, we do recognise the amazing the work that you do. And, and thank you. What more can I say than that?
0: Oh, I approve of that. Thanks. Peace out. <laughs> Until next time. Thank
1: you. Bye.
0: Bye. (laughs)